hope you're getting used to that uh, verse that we try and have at least once uh, in uh, every worship service where the musical instruments die down and we allow the voices, uh, our voices, to become the dominant sound, uh, that you're no longer wondering what's happened to the pianist, um, that you're able to keep going and maybe even take it up a notch uh, as you um, enjoy hearing the sound of your own voice giving the God of glory the worship that he deserves. Well, once again, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bible uh, or in a a red pew Bible uh, to Romans chapter 2. I always say it and I never tire of saying it. We really do want the Word to speak. We want God by His Spirit to speak through the Word. And so no one should be sitting without a Bible uh, open before them. I really want to encourage you uh, to do that as an act of worship. Well, imagine like a child on a swing getting a shove in the uh, direction in which you are already going. You may recall this descriptive statement from last week which came as part of the explanation for the Apostle Paul in Romans 1 where he said that homosexuality does not merely threaten the judgment of God but that it is itself the judgment of God. That when we reject the truth as those who indulge in sexual immorality do when we substitute the creature, even one who is made like ourselves, in place of the God who made us in his own image, we increasingly and progressively in a kind of a a death spiral embrace the darkness. When we reject the truth, we increasingly embrace the darkness. God hands us over, gives us a a shove in the direction in which we've chosen to go. This devastating reality is in practical and visible effect the result of God giving people over, God giving people up, God abandoning them. To the sin that they prefer. They prefer their sin over their knowledge of him and his righteousness. Well, in the process of unpacking Romans chapter 1, we have made reference to 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 12, where we are told that for people who refused to love the truth and so be saved, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1 ends with this truth that people in their rebellion against God not only practice many different kinds of sin but they give their approval to others who do it. They take pleasure in unrighteousness. Those are sobering truths. Those are hard truths. Those are dark truths. Those are some of the sobering thoughts that we've needed to contend with 
as we've sought to massage into our worldview, on the one hand, our view of reality, but also into our view of God, the God of the Bible. We've sought to massage the dramatic reality of God's judgment being revealed, being unleashed from heaven even now. Yes, there is a day of judgment, but God is constantly now giving a foretaste of that judgment in an ongoing way. We've got to understand this about the world. We've got to understand this about God. Those are hard truths, but necessary truths to take on board from God's word. Well, these realities are certainly not easy to get our minds and our emotions around, and so it's not at all surprising that virtually all the commentators and the, and the authorities that I've consulted in my own preparation have made some humorous comment as they've come to the end of chapter 1 and gone into chapter 2. So, for example, Dr. Stephen Lawson suggested to his his uh, congregation that uh, maybe they should have t-shirts printed that say on the front I survived Romans chapter 1 <laughs> if you're wanting to give yourself a pat on the back that you survived Romans chapter 1 we only spent 12 weeks on it Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 29 weeks on it but the question remains Having survived Romans chapter 1, the question remains, how does what Paul has been saying from verse 16 of chapter 1 right to the end of that chapter, how does that apply to me in particular? To me, am I included? That description, the exchanges, the giving over, the consequences that laundry list of sins, how does that apply to me? Well, let's move to chapter 2. Follow with me as I read the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 2 to you. We'll only be dealing with the first five, but we'll, real, we'll read the first 11. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. 
There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Well, the first 16 verses of this uh, second chapter form a kind of a unit. And it seems as if the Apostle Paul is turning his guns. He's shifting his focus off of the Gentiles onto the Jews. Because it is as if when Paul was training his guns on the Gentiles, There was a chorus of Jews saying, Amen, preach it, brother, tell them, give it to them, sock it to them. And now Paul says, You. Now Paul says to them, You're in my sights now, the Jews. And this kind of response arose out of a hypocritical feeling of spiritual superiority to which the the Jews in particular, but all people in general, are susceptible. The Jews believed that they were automatically saved. Why? Well, three different reasons. They believed that they were God's people. In verse 1 to 16, that seems to be the thrust. The Jews are saying with their fingers under their lapels, we are God's people. Give it to them. But we are God's people. Or secondly, that God gave them the law directly and and, uh, uniquely. That seems to be the thrust of verses 17 to 24 in this chapter. And then from 25 to the end of the chapter, they seem to have a third reason why God should give them a pass, circumcision. You gave us this sign, circumcision. We're special. Give those Gentiles what they deserve. But we Jews are special. It's hypocrisy. And that's what we need to address today. Because that's what God inspired Paul to address for us in this letter. Do you recall that very graphic scene there in the royal chamber of King David. Picture, as I'm sure you have, because you can't read this this narrative in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 12 without picturing it in your mind, where the prophet Nathan, and you can imagine his, his knees were knocking under his robes as he came to the adulterous King David, And he told him a story. And it was a very engaging story. And David was completely absorbed in the story of this rich man who had many flocks and herds. And this poor man who only had one darling little ewe lamb. And this lamb lived in their home as a beloved pet. In fact, the the text says that like a daughter was this little ewe lamb to this poor man. And the rich man has a visitor. And what does he do? He doesn't take one of his own lambs to feed his visitor. He sends someone to go and get this pet 
from the poor man and he feeds that to his guests. And at this point, David is enraged and he stands up indignantly and he says to Nathan the prophet, this man deserves to die. And then Nathan says, you're that man. You wonder how he said it. I'm sure he dropped his voice and he just said, that's you. That's you. You're so quick to judge this man, this hypothetical man in the story, but that man is you. And so the issue of judging and condemning others when we ourselves are just as guilty is precisely what these verses are about. So notice in the text that chapter 2 starts with a word, therefore. And this really tips us off to the fact that even though we're now in chapter 2, we're actually still busy with the theme that Paul was pursuing in chapter 1. Paul is still busy drilling down further into human depravity and the resultant condemnation of God. He was dealing with that with reference to the Gentiles in chapter 1. And even though he's turned his guns now on the Jews, he's still dealing with that very issue human depravity, and the resultant condemnation of God. Why? Because the Apostle Paul wants to corral us all. He wants to herd us all into one camp where we will all appreciate, thoroughly appreciate, our need for an alien righteousness. You have none of your own. You have no hope unless you receive a righteousness from outside of yourself, which is the very point of verses 16 and 17 that we looked at in chapter 1. And so you notice in these verses that it is as if Paul is interrogating an imaginary man, and he refers to this man with the phrase, O man! Therefore you have no excuse, O man. Again in verse 3 he uses that phrase. And we see he uses this technique again in chapter 9 when he speaks to this O man again. So what do we really have here in these five verses? Well, there are three things, and let's separate them, let's identify them and appreciate them. Firstly, do you notice that Paul makes two statements about this man. And as I say, he's probably a Jew. That seems to be the point. Firstly, he says, you have no excuse. The first part of verse 1. The same statement that he used back in verse 20 of chapter 1. And then he says, secondly, in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. Statement number 1, you have no excuse. Statement number two, in passing judgment on others, you condemn yourself. In your willingness to condemn others, you show that you know the standard. You're aware of the standard. You apply it. But you don't apply it to yourself. You apply it to others. As Paul listed those 21 vices in chapter 1, it appears as if he hears in his mind the Jews egging him on. Tell them, tell them, they're guilty. 
when they themselves are just as guilty. The self-righteous Jew needs to condemn himself. But then, in addition to these two statements about the sinner, won't you also notice in the text that Paul asks two rhetorical questions. You all know what a rhetorical question is. It doesn't expect an answer. It suggests its own answer. It's a, it's a literary device that's very helpful. Notice in verse 3, he says, Do you think you will escape the judgment of God? You can't read it in any other way other than to, to suggest the answer. Clearly, no. Ridiculous. You won't escape judgment. That's the first rhetorical question. And in verse 4, he goes on to ask a second one. Do you presume upon the grace of God, his kindness, forbearance, and, for pa- and patience? You see, that's the reality of self-righteous people. They're prone to feeling immune. They're, they're prone to feeling entitled. And that was the very heart of Judaism, that this religious moralism where they felt that they were superior and immune from God's judgment and God's condemnation. And Paul is bringing this to the surface with these rhetorical questions. But then the third thing we have in the text is Paul telling us two important things about God. Do you notice that he tells us that God's judgment is according to knowledge and truth? And we're going to pick up on this next week because we'll look at some of the other criterion that God uses for his judgment. I'm sure you pricked up your attention when you noticed verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. But come back next week for that. So the first important thing that Paul says here about God is that God's judgment will be according to knowledge and truth amongst a group of other things. But then you also notice that Paul makes a statement about God's agenda regarding his kindness. God's kindness is has a point to it. God is leading us to repentance. And so Paul says, we know that. And then in the second half of the verse, that God's judgment rightly falls on those who do such things. God judges according to truth. His judgment is based on truth and not merely on impressions as is ours. And so here is the hard truth that we need to receive and process. Simply this. All sinners, every one of us, all of us are included. All sinners are by nature like the Jews in their hypocritical pride and presumption. It's a strange reality which we need to come to terms with. We are all susceptible to certain realities regarding sin. The first that we can mention, and I'm so thankful to Martin Lloyd-Jones for mentioning these things, because you need to stand back and see these realities in your own life. See how susceptible you are to the terrible character of sin that it makes us feel dirty and guilty and condemned. And yet we're able to push that down and push it to the side. We're all susceptible, secondly, to the subtlety of sin. We miss it in ourselves, 
and yet we can identify it so confidently, so clearly in others. Thirdly, we're all susceptible to sin introducing a certain kind of prejudice in us, a, a kind of confirmation bias that we begin to pick and choose from the Bible, the things that we, that we want to emphasize and the things that we don't want to emphasize. Sin tempts us, fourthly, to view ourselves as belonging to a, a special category or a compartment. And it's not long in your thinking about sin that you eventually develop this us and them. Us, we, we're fine, but them, they're bad. We do that. It's a natural susceptibility that we have that sin brings into our personality and our judgment. In the fifth place, we're fast to apply the truth to others rather than to ourselves. We're blind to our own shortcomings and yet very perceptive about the shortcomings of others. Isn't that true? In the sixth place, we are tempted to think that we have enough righteousness of our own, and even though we, we delight in justification by faith, we, we somehow feel that we can say to God, help others. They need righteousness, but I think I've got enough of my own. Of course, we'll never admit that, but there is in all of us a moralism and a ritualism that comes naturally to us. We rely on forms and ceremonies. I've been baptized. I've been going to church. I'm a church member. I've done this. I've done that. Help others. My righteousness is intact. Thank you very much. And then we need to recognize that sin leads us to separate doctrine from life. We're able, strangely, to separate the head and the heart we know certain things, but we don't allow those things to, to filter down into our hearts. We, we don't change our ways. And so there is this reality uh, that Jesus raises in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, where people will come to God and say, I did this and I did that all in your name, and God will say, away from me. Never knew you. Never knew you. And friends, these seven realities, I've mentioned them very quickly, but they can cause us to develop a hard and impenitent heart, which is what verse 5 warns us against. And we need to realize that in terms of the deceptiveness of sin, in terms of the effects of sin on our hearts and our consciences, we can so easily land up as the Jews were doing, storing up for themselves wrath on the day of wrath. They thought they were fine. They were going through all the forms. They were doing all the rituals. But all the while, their hearts were proud. Their hearts were hard. Their hearts were impenitent. And Paul is warning us as he's warning them, watch out. You can land up storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. So what, if, what does all of this mean as we look at these five verses? What does it mean practically for us? Well, let me give you three things, and with these we'll end. Number one, we do need to judge. This is a passage against judging. But notice 
that we need to read into this, not that judging is wrong, but that condemning others unfairly is what's wrong. Applying a different standard to them than to ourselves, that's what's wrong. Clearly, we've got to exercise discernment. Clearly that we have to have an opinion from the scriptures. We've got to make a discernment, a decision, a choice between right and wrong. What is true and what's error. We've got to do that. But in our judging, we must be consistent. The standard we apply to others, we must apply to ourselves. Let's stop being so soft and permissive regarding our own sin, but so hard and insightful regarding the sins of those around us. One of the most misquoted and misunderstood verses in the Bible must surely be Matthew 7 verse 1, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, judge not that you not be judged. I think if I had 10 rand for every time someone said to us, said to me, well, who am I to judge? I'd be a wealthy man. The reality is, you've got to judge. You've got to judge. Don't think that Jesus is saying in Matthew 7 verse 1 that you mustn't judge because clearly from the context and from the verses that follow, the point is not the judging. The point is the tendency to condemn. That's the issue. To apply to others a standard that you're not prepared to apply to yourselves. That's the issue. We've got to judge. We can't just go ahead and allow everything to happen and let our children run riot and let everyone around us do as they please. Who am I to judge? That's not godly at all. We've got to judge. But let's just be consistent in the standard that we apply. Let's apply the standard first to ourselves before we apply it to them. So that's the first thing that we need to take away. That neither in Matthew 7 at verse 1 or in these verses is God saying that we must not judge. We must judge. But we must be consistent in applying the standard that we use to others as well as ourselves. To ourselves as well as others. But then secondly, the second thing that we can take away from these verses is that we must appreciate, we must work hard and we need help to appreciate the, the gracious nature of God, the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Does Paul not say there in verse 4, do you presume, do you trample all over the riches of God's goodness, his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? was lovely yesterday in the uh, the membership classes as we went around the table and let everyone just tell us something about themselves it was lovely to hear you Tina using the word repentance because clearly God had impressed upon you as he needs to impress upon all of us that when it comes to conversion a hell-bound sinner being transformed by God into a heaven-bound saint. The first step in that process, when viewed from a human perspective, is 
repentance, this change of mind, and this change in direction, where you see your sin for what it is and you turn from it, that's repentance. And this needs to be part of our Christian vocabulary. It needs to be how we understand salvation. We need to appreciate, as we look at the gospel in terms of what we say about God and what we say about the sinner and what we say about Christ the Savior and what we say in the fourth place about our response to all of this, response number one is repentance. There needs to be repentance. And of course it's a a lovely question to ask at this point. What is repentance? Describe repentance for me. Help me to know whether I have actually been repentant or not in biblical categories. Well, Thomas Watson, I'm so thankful to Lorenzo for pointing this out to me. Thomas Watson in his little booklet, uh, a Puritan speaking as decisively as Puritans were able to speak He uh, describes repentance as a medicine with six ingredients. Repentance is a medicine that is made up of six ingredients. What are they? Firstly, a sight of your sin. You must see your sin for what it is. See it in its stark terms. But then secondly, you need to, having seen your sin, having identified your sin, You need to sorrow for your sin. I don't know about you, but it's fairly easy when you hear a story of a gunman going into a school and shooting 19 primary school kids. It's very easy to sorrow over that, to be moved to tears. What kind of man would do that? But the question is, when last have you been moved to tears about your own sin? When last have have you seen your sin for what it is such that you've sorrowed for it? You've, you've, You've been broken by it. You've said, Lord, how could I do that? When last did you do that? Have you ever done that? That's one of the ingredients of this medicine is a sorrow for sin. Not just a regret, not just an embarrassment, but an actual sorrow broken the law of God after all God has done I did that sorrow for sin but then thirdly confession of sin are you willing to actually condemn yourself and own up and say yes I did that you say it to God you've identified it you're sorrow for it sorrow for it sorrowful for it and you're now confessing it to God Fourthly, you feel shame for it. You feel dirtied by it. You feel burdened by it. You're not going to explain it away. You're not going to justify yourself for it. You feel the shame of it. In the fifth place, you, you feel a, a hatred for it. You want to turn from it like a, like a, 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 a rotten potato in your, in your, uh, in your vegetable cupboard. The other day, Maury and I were walking past our vegetable cupboard and we said, something smells bad here. And it doesn't take you long when you open there. There are few things that smell quite as bad as a rotten potato. And you don't take it out with a smile. You take it out with a... Are you willing to view your own sin that way? A hatred for it. And finally, are you then going to turn from it? 
or are you going to put it in your inside pocket and love it? Protect it. Defend your rights to it. And Thomas Watson makes the point that if any one of these six ingredients is missing from the medicine, then what the gospel calls for in terms of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that it's not present. You need these six ingredients to know that what you are feeling, what you are expressing is genuine, biblical repentance. And what Paul is saying here is that the kindness of God, the goodness of God in his, in his patience and his long-suffering, in his benevolence, that God uses this to lead us to the point where we take our medicine, we repent of our sins. We'll have further opportunity uh, to speak about repentance, so I'll leave it there. But the question must go home with us today. Am I a stranger to repentance? I'm not talking about once upon a time when you felt broken by your sins, something happened and you remember breaking down before God and you repented. That's wonderful. But as that continued on as a way of life, where you, where you review your life, you review the day, you review your words, and you speak to God, having a sight of your sin and a sorrow for your sin, confessing your sin, feeling ashamed over your sin, hating your sin, turning from your sin, is this something that you are familiar with? But then finally, the third thing. Let us just be assured that if we do not humble ourselves in gratitude toward God and in acknowledgement of our sin, we will with a hard and impenitent heart find ourselves condemned in the final judgment. This is something that will come up again next week. There is abroad today a theology that says there is nothing for us to do. That we just need to appreciate the grace of God and that's all. I want to suggest to you friends read the Bible. There are things that we need to do and one of the things we need to do is we need to humble ourselves to feel and express gratitude to God we need to humble ourselves and feel and express sorrow for our sins in repentance. These are things we need to do. They're not works that save us. God doesn't reward us for doing those things, but they are the outworking of God's grace. If God's grace has really been active in your life, you'll feel a gratitude toward him that will boil over in worship, and you'll feel a sorrow for sin that will express itself in repentance. And if those things are not present, you have every reason to expect that maybe you have a hard and impenitent heart. And if you do, don't write it off because a hard and impenitent heart stores up wrath for the day of God's wrath. Let's pray together. Lord, we do want to thank you for your word and we do want to thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are at work as the after preacher. We do pray for ourselves today 
We are so prone to think that others should hear these things. But we know that we need to hear them. We want to be grateful people. We want to be appreciative of your kindness toward us, your forbearance, your benevolence, your patience. You use circumstances and situations to lead us to see our sin and to turn from it in repentance. And we want to be grateful, repenting people. Help us as we go into this week to be those kinds of people, not judging others, not full of condemnation for others, seeing all the ugliness and the brokenness around us and having an opinion about what needs to happen, but feeling the reality of our own sinfulness and our own tendencies toward unrighteousness. And won't you give us a growing appreciation for the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ that becomes ours by faith, for the blood that he shed on Calvary's hill to wash away not their sin only, but ours. So help us, O God, in these issues of our identity. Let us not be hypocritical moralists, quick to point out other people's shortcomings, but constantly prone to giving ourselves a pass. Help us in this, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.